So we had a um, couple of uh, months ago now, Brother Nathan shared about salvation and uh, from the book of Ephesians. And he's done a fantastic job. <coughs> and I'm not about to build on that or to outdo it or to overdo it. But he spoke about the mechanics of salvation, how salvation works. I'd like this morning to bring it in a slightly different context, and that is about meaning. What does salvation mean? What does salvation mean to you? And what does salvation mean to me right here, right now? Let's not think about salvation in, in, in the judgment day when we are standing before the throne. Let's not think about something futuristic. Let's think about what does salvation mean to me right now? Because it is important. And salvation often is, is being put together as something that has to do with... Uh, with faith and works, you know, you you need to do something to be saved. They are, they are the people that are more on the legalistic side. And some others say, no, no, it's all by faith. And it's all done for you and that's it. And and somehow, we are, we, we, in our mind, we're thinking, so how, how does this all work? But on top of that, what does it mean to me? And so, uh, we know that uh, in... Um, in the book of James, we are told about this something about salvation. And I think that we have uh, somehow got the wrong concept about that. Also, when I say about meaning, how to understand salvation and, and what does it mean to us, we can only understand it from our own frame of mind, from our own position where we are culturally, physically, financially, and also emotionally. We can only understand salvation from where our mind, the parameters of what we think. And if we want to get a deeper, greater meaning than that, we need to step out of that and either we make the frame bigger or we step into someone else's frame of mind. Otherwise, it's limited by the way that we think. <coughs> so I'm not sure whether you're prepared to step somewhere outside of that. It might not be a need. We can stay within our own frame of mind, but you have to understand that your frame of mind is not my frame of mind. And your frame of mind is not the same frame of mind as that person that is next to you. So somehow, Paul understands slightly different. So if I was to go around each person, around each bench, after the service, all of us will perhaps give us a different answer. And that's okay. That's not a problem. However, I think that we need to understand from the position that God also has been trying to tell us about salvation. And I think that we have made a mess out of that. Not totally, but I think that a lot of people... Theologically, have made a big mess out of that. And, and I'll be going to the scriptures in a moment. But first of all, I'd like to say and, 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 and somehow break this argument down about what is it about works. And then in the end, we'll come back to it and reconstruct it. So let's break it first, and then in the end, let's put it all together. So James 2.14, it says, What good is it, my brother and sister... If someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Hmm. Good question. I think it's a fantastic question from James. And then in verse 226 in James it says, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So how do we reconcile this with what Brother Nathan was saying not long ago in Ephesians 2.8? 
For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This seems to be contradicting. And this is not from your own. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one would boast. Incidentally, what James is saying is nothing to do about salvation. I'm sorry if I am disappointing you. It has nothing to do with the work, the saving work of Christ for us. So that's the first thing. The second thing is sometimes a misconception that we might have about our existence in the Garden of Eden. You have been, you, you probably would have heard that God has given us a choice. Yeah? And I know that some of us are, they are your, your, your roots are deeply in there. And even when we preach the gospel, we say that God has given humans a choice. Right? Wrong. If you think that God has given you a choice, I went to the cemetery last week. I went to see some demons that are resting there in the Lord. And because I had some time up my sleeve, I went to see also some people, acquaintances. There's some walking around. I see people. I see the ruins of uh, ruined lives. And I thought, at least if it was like when I was walking through some places like Jerusalem, where you see what you made all building structures that are no more that are falling apart. But here, the ruin is so great, so, so, so powerful that there is nothing left. You cannot even see ashes. I thought if at least they could show skeletons that there was a person here. And I know that they would be probably disgusting. I know they would be probably desecrating to a life that was fulfilled living on earth. But what I'm trying to say, that the ruin is so great. And if we say that God has given a choice to human beings in the Garden of Eden, then not everyone would be there. There will be some people that would not be there. Someone would have taken a different choice. God did not give a choice to Adam and Eve. Let me put it in a bit more clear. You buy a ticket from here to New York, yeah? And you bought the plane. Are you giving the pilot the choice to ditch the plane? I don't think so. Can he take the choice? Yes, he can. But it will be tragic. When God, and I know that this concept comes when God puts two trees in the Garden of Eden. So obviously, if they stood, there is a choice. No, what God is saying, Adam, there is something sinister here in the garden. There is something that you need to know. There is something you need to be aware of. And it's represented in that tree. Don't eat from the tree. Because the fruit of that tree will show. You will see what the fruit is like. Don't eat it now, please. Not now, not ever. You will see how rotten the fruit of that tree is. And, and, and there is serpents here. There, you know, God is telling, God is giving a warning to Adam, you know, watch out. It is not a choice. It's a warning. When you see the speed limit 110, are you given a choice? Can you go up to 100? It's a warning. It's not a choice. You go over that. You endanger your life, the life of others. You're going to get a fine. You're going to lose a license. Yeah, lots of things. God does not give a choice in Eden. However, He gives us a choice now. Yeah, I thought that that makes some sense. 
I want to I illustrate this. So imagine. Imagine that there is a metaphor. Oh, hallelujah, is it working? <laughs> that is. That is. Oh, okay. Let's try. Great. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Actually, you're working it. Fantastic. Okay, so imagine, I was going to draw a pit there for you. Imagine there is a pit of sin, yeah? And a cat falls into the pit. And the cat may be playing, may be having a good time in that pit. And may be enjoying the time in that pit. Can that cat get out? No. Does that cat need salvation? Yes. Was it the cat's choice to go into there? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe the cat wasn't careful enough. And there are these some kittens born in their feet. Are those kittens at fault? Is it their fault? Was it their choice to be there? Hmm? So when the passengers of an airliner end up at the bottom of the ocean because a pilot took a choice. Was it their choice to be at the bottom of the ocean? Maybe not. Yeah? And so you have to imagine that there is a cross that Jesus descends to there. A stone that Jesus took two steps down from being God to angel to human being. Yeah, and then he takes another two steps down. Actually, we're pushing two steps down. I, 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 I won't have the time to explain it, but I'll just give you a little glimpse of this. When he's in that pit, we make him feel like a worm, human animal worm. That's how we make him feel. Anyway, another topic for another time. And so right there, God is saying, for God so loved the world, what is that? John? John 3.16, for God so loved the world, I'll have to read it, we should have read it by heart, that he gave the only begotten Son, and whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. What does 3.17 say? Ah, we should know. 3.17 and 3.18, we should go together. It's a trinity. It's a trinity of salvation. Remember that. God is a trinity. John 3.16 is also a trinity. For God so loved the world, and they said, For the Son, or for God did not send His Son to condemn the world, but to save the world. So God sent His Son into that pit, not to tell Him, Hey, you're going to go to hell, I'll give you a choice, yeah? Think about it. No, God is saying, I have come to rescue you because you are in hell already. God is not sending anyone to hell. Please get it out of your head. You know, just recently I was in Canada and, and there was a girl that uh, well, I spoke in Baden and she said, I don't believe in God. I said, tell me about God you don't believe in. She said, I don't believe in a God that sends children to hell. I said, I don't believe in a God either. Who told you that God sends children to hell? Who told you that God sends anyone ever to hell? God does not send anyone to hell. Yeah? What's the other of the Trinity? Whoever well, believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned. It's already in hell. Will remain in hell already. Because they have not believed in the name of God. The one and only God's son. 
I hope that we're starting to understand what salvation means to me. You know, it might not be my fault that I'm in the pit. It might not be my fault that I'm a sinner. However, I am a sinner. And I need help. And I need God to rescue me, to take me out of there. You know, Jesus made it so simple that we actually missed it out. You know, we, we, we completely misunderstood Jesus. Jesus could not make it any simpler. I'll read it to you. And tell me if you understand it. <clears throat> Luke 10, 30, 10, 25. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must, what must I do to be saved? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? How do you understand the law? How do you understand the book that you have been reading for so long? He answered, love your God, or love the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, with, with everything that you have, and your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you'll live. But he wanted to justify himself, and he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going there from Jerusalem to Jericho, and when that was happening, he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and, we, uh, and, and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to go past, I mean, they the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side of the road, he crossed the road. Uh, I explained that once before. So to a Levite, when uh, he came to a place and saw him, passed on the other side of the road. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and then he put it, uh, the man on his donkey and brought him to an inn to take care of, or to, to, or to care for him, to be taken care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. Uh, Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for the extra expense that you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy. Jesus told him, go and do otherwise. Now, if that is not a YouTube clip, I don't know what it is. Have we watched it? What is he saying? Let me try to play this as a film, not as a story. There is a man that is coming down from Jerusalem, coming down to Jericho. Who is that man? That man is Adam. Adam has left the glory, the presence of God in the Garden of Eden to go down to the pity or to the pit of the world. And as he's going down, robbers, Satan, Beats him up, wounds him, robs him, leaves him naked, and leaves him to die, just like Jesus on the cross. And so, who comes to see him? The first one that comes is a light. Who? Someone, please help me. A priest. The law. This guy was about the law. And the priest comes, the law comes, and the law is hopeless and helpless. Cannot help this wounded man. Cannot give him salvation. It just hollows the state that he's in, but walks past. I cannot help you. Who comes next? A Levi, representing the prophets. 
the law and the prophets could not help this wounded man that fell in the hand of robbers. And so who comes next? A Samaritan. Why a Samaritan? Because Jesus was thought to be a publican, to be a sinner, to be a, a, a discarded, someone who is not a Jew. So he comes down and the first thing that he does is what? He takes care of the wounds. That's what salvation is. So where you are, when we're talking about salvation, we're talking a little bit more than being saved from sin. I hope that that is clear. And about there's something, I shouldn't know how many times, but there is uh, something like 700 times the word salvation is, is written. Only twice it refers to be saved from sin. Jesus is actually, the Samaritan is bandaging the wounds. He stops there and starts doing the amazing thing of a doctor. Why do we think that this Samaritan is Jesus? Well, which traveler would be carrying bandages? Huh? Which man pretending to be a doctor? What is the next thing that he does? Pours oil. The Holy Spirit. He says, you know what? I'm going to give my spirit. I'm going to anoint you with oil so you get better. And then he gives him wine in representation to have communion with him. Is this about doing something good to the neighbor? Yes. Have we misunderstood the YouTube clip that Jesus was telling him? Just like the expert there? Maybe. The story is about salvation. The story is not about doing something good. Yes, as a subsequence of doing something good. But Jesus is telling this guy wanted to be saved. Desperately wanted to be saved. He knew about loving God and loving your neighbor. And what Jesus is saying, you know that what you know. That exactly go and do it if you can. Because I don't think that it will save you. You need a good Samaritan to come and save you. And after what he does, he takes him, puts him on his donkey, and takes him to an inn to be taken care of by an innkeeper. Uh, we have a couple of ministers here. That is your job. You know, Jesus is giving you a recompense to take care of those people, the wounded ones that he has given in your care. Yeah? And be very clear. Understand that. I will not be here forever. It is your job to carry on with that. But God has given it in your care, these people. And if you don't care for them, he will demand it of you until he comes back. So I understand in my mind this Samaritan is coming down from Jerusalem, halfway through Jericho. He's going away. We don't know where he's going, but he's going to come back to get that wounded, to go back to where? To Jerusalem. Isn't the story about Jesus? Who is the neighbor in this story? Jesus. Jesus is the neighbor, and Jesus is the good Samaritan. You know, in your lives, Sometimes we need to, we human beings are like, like these things, yeah? Like, like technology. And, and, you know, kids mess up with it. Yeah, those that got kids, you know, two years old, five years old and play with it. Uh, old people mess up with it. They don't understand, you know? Uh, the next thing is uh, they go to the grandson or the son or whoever, grand, grand, like, can you fix it? It's not working, yeah? Uh, have you heard of anyone like that, yeah? Uh, so this thing is not working, it, it, it's broken. 
and, and, uh, and, and the children of the sons do the same thing. And whoever understands about these things, is, what is the first thing that he looks for? Sarah, you know about this stuff, about computers. Uh, uh, ben, and many of you know about computers. What is the first thing that you do when the computer is not working, when something is not working, when something is not right, when this has been so messed up with other people's heads and voices that it's totally jammed? What do you do? What, what button do you press? Someone, please help me. The restart, the reset button. And Jesus wants to press the reset button in your life because your life has been totally messed up. And my life has been totally messed up by me, by my kids, by my neighbors, by everybody else. People that don't understand how I work. And my life is a disaster. Your neighbor's life is a disaster. And we need the reset button. And we need Jesus to press the reset button to take us to the original person that he created us to be in God. The one that was made in his image. Does it make sense? Is salvation meaningful to us? You know, sometimes we complicate things a lot more than what we should. So let's go a little bit back now, because we're going to run home now. <clears throat> what about this thing I've had? works with our faith that we started with. Well, in Matthew, Jesus gives us a very clear picture about this. And, uh, and he says, uh, then uh, those uh, will say on his left, depart from, he will say to those, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, you know, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat, and I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison, and did not help you? And he replied to them, I truly tell you, whatever you did not, for one of these least of me, he did not do it for me. If we remember, and I'll, I will put it there in a moment, but uh, in, uh, in Ephesians, actually, let's, I'll, I'll read it now. In Ephesians, there's also a trinity there, yeah? I think I don't know why these things of Trinity come across the scripture. Uh, so you would say by grace, by faith, not by works. And he talks about that. And Ephesians 2.10, it says, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us. So what Jesus is saying, you know what, I got you out of this pit. And I don't want you to live that life anymore. Number one, I want you to change your clothing. You know, get rid of whatever is sinful. You know, take off the, the dirty clothes that we, we stay in the pit and be dressed in a new nature that is in Christ. Be, be, have a new, a new outlook on you. You know, uh, you have been poured, you have been anointed with oil, you have, you have shared the communion. But I want you to live a different life now. A life that is not a simple life. A life that it's clean. Yeah? 
So this is not about faith and works at all. It's not about that. What Jesus is saying, you know what? I want to return on investment. I have invested my life in you. Yeah? I have given my life, I have given everything that I have, and everything that I have, I have given it for you. In order to get you out of the pit. Now, I want to return on investment. I want you to go and do all these things. These things that were not, long, that were not in your nature before. You go and do it. Because this is what I made you for. This is what I created you originally. And if you're not going to do it, then you may as well go back to the pit. What's the point of getting you out? If you're going to be rolling in sin again, you may as well stay in the pit. You have not learned anything. Because it's the pit that caused you and all the grief, all the wounds, all the loneliness, and all the darkness in your life. So... The way that we reconcile these things about doing things is faith at work. Is being allowing the faith and the grace and the salvation of Jesus when he takes us out of there and now that we have seen the light we subsequently have changed when we created for good works in Christ. So let's recap. Salvation can mean different things to different people. If you're wounded, if you're suffering, if there is something not right in your life, salvation is there for you. Jesus is there for you to bandage you, to help you. That's what it means. Even if you're out of the pit. So salvation is always present and always real. And if you feel a little bit under the weather, maybe no direction, you need the help of the Holy Spirit. You need the oil. And if you feel somehow that you regret some things, that you have gone astray, you need the wine. You need the communion. Again, I don't know why the Trinity, the three things I mentioned there are Maybe I'm reading too much into it. But Jesus is, is there to, to give us salvation here and now. We need to feel that we are saved. We need to know that it's His grace, that it's His work that has given us salvation. And if you feel that your life is messed up, find where the reset button is and allow him to press it. God bless you. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the saving grace, for your love that is unmeasurable. We want to thank you that in Jesus we have been made anew. We are a new creation. And help us to now live the life that was intended for us to live. Thank you for giving us a choice now to choose between right and wrong. Help us to choose wisely. Help us to believe in you. Help us to have faith in you. To recognize you in all your ways. And may you, through your grace, through your mercy, 
Retrieve us from the pit. Bandage us, Lord. May you anoint us with the oil of the Holy Spirit. And may you continue to have communion with us. Restore us, Lord. Give us life. That we will be able to live again. To walk again. That we will not lay wounded by the side of the road. Thank you, Father, for so much mercy, for so much love. In Jesus' name, amen.